Welcome to all of you. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see you here this evening. We're competing with poetry down in the Poe Room, so. <laughs> but we're glad you're all up here with us. Um, Susan Katz Miller is both an interfaith child and an interfaith parent. Her father is Jewish, her mother Protestant, and she grew up in Reformed Judaism. After marrying a Protestant, who's also with us here this evening, <laughs> um, Susan and her husband decided to raise their children in both religions, in a community of interfaith families, in, um, most recently in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Uh, Susan serves as a board co-chair of the Interfaith Families Project of Greater Washington, D.C. She is a journalist, a photographer, and also an author. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications from Time and Slate to the Utney Reader. Her new book, Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family, chronicles the grassroots movement of interfaith families and shows the benefits of this choice. We're happy to have Susan here this evening to talk about her new book. Thank you. 25 years ago, more or less, my husband and I got married in my backyard in New England, and we had a rabbi and a minister co-officiate. Three days after that wedding, we moved to West Africa, and I had left my job as a Newsweek reporter in the Washington Bureau. And frankly, I had no idea what I was going to do in Africa. I was following my husband. I remember stepping off the plane in Dakar and being hit by this wall of tropical humidity. And I was wearing a heavy leather jacket. And, and I peeled the jacket off and I thought, okay, this is a layer that I don't need anymore. I'm putting it aside. And I'm heading into something new and completely different into a much more global, complex world than I have known in my little New England background. Well, by the end of three years there, I had learned how to bargain for a mango in Wolof, which is the dominant language there, and how to wrap my waist in African cloth. And my husband and I had settled into a pattern of celebrating Christian holidays, Jewish holidays, and Muslim holidays with our Senegalese friends and neighbors. Well, we came back for a few years and lived in Baltimore, just a few blocks from here, on Mount Vernon Place. And then we moved to northeastern Brazil. Now, Brazil, you might know, is the largest Catholic country in the world. But we were in the northeast, where there's also a very strong connection to the Yoruba practices of West Africa that were brought over. And a lot of Brazilians celebrate Catholicism and celebrate these Yoruba-based rites and rituals at the same time, and they don't really see any conflict in doing both. So I think both of our overseas tours in Senegal, in Brazil, fed into the decision that we ultimately made to raise our children with both of our family traditions. But to really understand that, we have to go back a generation. If you will picture a rainy night in 1953 at Boston's Logan Airport, and there's one taxi left at the stand, and there's a man and a woman walking towards it. Well, 
Somehow they got in together, and by the time the woman who would become my mother got out, the man who would become my father had obtained her phone number, even though she claims she never gave her phone number out to anybody, but luckily she did. And what followed were seven years of really struggle for them over whether they could get married, because interfaith marriage was not common in the 1950s. It was very much disapproved of by clergy of all stripes. But finally, they took the leap, and my mother then became one of the first great examples of what I think of as an all-but-conversion mother of a Jewish family. So we joined a reformed Jewish synagogue, which would accept the children as being Jewish, and she learned to make matzo balls that floated, and she even studied some Hebrew, and she shepherded all four of her children through the bar and bat mitzvah process. And I think my parents made an excellent choice. Um, It worked very well in our family to choose one religion. In the place and the time that they were making that choice, I think it was a logical choice. And it's a choice that works for a lot of families, even today but it's not a choice that works for all families. And part of what I write about in this book is the idea that if you have an interfaith family, no matter which pathway you choose, whether it's one religion or the other or both or no religions or a new third religion or all religions, each of those pathways is going to have specific drawbacks and each of those pathways is going to have specific benefits. None of those pathways is going to actually erase what I think of as the interfaithness of the children. And I think of that interfaithness not as a problem, but as an inspiration. For me, in my life, it's been inspirational. And part of the idea that I'm trying to get across in the book is that no matter what label you choose for your interfaith children, no matter what pathway you choose in terms of affiliations, that it's really important to give your children the idea that they are inspiring and not a problem and to give them the ideas that they can be peacemakers and bridge builders and interfaith ambassadors as interfaith children. Now, I mentioned that every pathway has drawbacks. So I want to talk for a little bit about the drawbacks of choosing one because the narrative has been if you choose one, the family will all be one thing and and the problem will be gone. And I don't think that's the way it works. So for me, having one religion chosen for me had great benefits, but it also had drawbacks. And the two I'm going to talk about, one is I've had to defend my identity as a Jew all my life. So as you probably know, from an Orthodox or a conservative point of view, Judaism passes only through the mother. So my father is chopped liver, and I have to go out and defend my Jewish identity. I do want to point out that if you are an interfaith child, you're going to have to defend your identity no matter what label your parents have chosen for you. So if your parents choose both, you're going to have to explain that to everybody. If your parents choose none, people are going to challenge you on that. Um, It's an inherent part of being an interfaith child. And of course, it helps to build character. So there's a silver lining to that drawback. Um, Another drawback for me was, as a feminist, 
I struggled with what my mother had to give up, the idea that she had to put aside her religion. I find that very poignant. And frankly, I wasn't willing to do it myself. So for our kids, if you look at their family tree, three out of four of their grandparents are actually Episcopalian. So what would the logical choice be for them? Episcopalian. But I wasn't willing to give up the Judaism. I was intent on bringing that to them and on handing that down. So, and that was partly as a feminist and it was partly as a Jew. I just wanted to do that. So I couldn't do what my mother did, even though I admire in some ways what she did and I admire what people do when they agree to choose one religion, um, especially when that is the right choice for that family. It's a very personal decision. Um, so... Last fall, two things happened. One is my book came out, and the other was that Pew Research put out this huge study of the Jewish American landscape. It got a lot of press, but there was one statistic in there that didn't get a lot of attention, but that really popped out um, to me, even though my book had already come out, and that was 25% of intermarried Jewish parents are raising kids partly Jewish and partly something else. So that's a quarter of these interfaith families are doing both with their children. Now, a lot of them are not doing it in the kind of deep and intentional way that, that my family did, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Historically, there's been a lot of confusion between doing both and doing nothing. And they're not the same thing, but I think one of the problems has been that families that tried to do both often ended up doing nothing. And that's partly because they didn't have support from clergy, from extended family, from institutions. Um, this was seen as something that it's really not a good choice, don't go there. But what that Pew Research tells me is my family is no longer marginal or eccentric. We're actually a large cohort coming up. And what I've been doing for a lot of the past year is speaking with a lot of clergy, a lot of religious institutions, um, sometimes quietly in private. There are some clergy and institutions that don't really want to be seen as associating with me, but they very much want to know what's in this book because they know it's important, because statistically, this is an important movement. So, as a journalist, I set out to chronicle what has become a grassroots movement. What we have now is in New York, Chicago, and Washington, very vibrant, intentional communities that families have come together to form where they give interfaith education to their interfaith children and raise them with both family religions. We're talking about Judaism and Christianity here for the most part. I focus on those two in my book because that's my personal experience and because that is the two religions involved in these movements, but I do have a chapter of stories from Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, other interfaith families, all of them raising their children with both. And I do believe that these communities that I'm going to talk about form a template for other types of religious combinations going forward. I'm beginning to see it, particularly Muslim Christian, there are a lot of interfaith families now. And there are support groups for those families um, in the UK, in France. There's one in Chicago. 
Um, so that's sort of the next wave coming up, I think. Um, but the three communities that I'm talking about, Chicago, New York, and Washington, each of those communities has over 100 children, all interfaith children, all getting an interfaith education in these formal programs. And what does that look like? This is how it looks. You have a Jewish teacher and a Christian teacher in every classroom in all three of those programs. So that they are teaching the common ground, but also the important differences, and they are important, as well as the points of historical contact between the two religions, which is not something that's really emphasized in a single-faith religious context, but which is really important, especially for interfaith children, to understand that you know, it's not that you have two halves and there's a big red line and, and the one has nothing to do with the other. Particularly Judaism and Christianity have evolved together and worked off each other in ways that aren't always admitted, but they have influenced each other through all of history. Um, so you have these three pro programs, and I wanted to go beyond anecdotes. So I collected stories. I'm a reporter. I interviewed people. But I was also looking for data. What happens when you raise kids with both? Is there data on that? Well, there isn't. So I created some. I did a survey of 250 parents who had put their children in these interfaith programs, interfaith education for interfaith kids, and 50 teens and young adults who had gone through the programs themselves. So this is sort of the first generation to be brought up in an intentional interfaith program. With the parents, one of the main questions I was asking was, why are you doing this? I mean, you've got your clergy telling you not to do it. You've got your mother-in-law telling you not to do it. And you're doing it anyway. There has to be a very strong incentive. What, it, what, is, what is that incentive? And the number one reason that parents gave was that they simply wanted their children to be knowledgeable in both religions. They wanted them to be, if you will, literate, bilingual in two religious languages so that they would recognize references in culture, in literature, to both. Um, a second reason was that they wanted a space to be together as a family where neither parent was going to feel like a guest or like the out parent. It's a very powerful experience when you're together and everybody has an equal role and an equal right to be there. Um, and the third reason, top reason of the reasons people gave was that they wanted their children to have self-esteem as interfaith children and not to feel like they were marginal. They wanted them to feel like they were in the center of something. And that's what these intentional interfaith family communities provide. Now, for the children, I asked them a lot of questions, but I'll give you a few pieces of data from that survey. Um, one is that more than 90% of them said that their parents had made a good decision in teaching them both. So they are confirming the choices that their parents made. Close to 90% of them said that they were not confused because that has been a traditional concern that this would be confusing to learn two religious systems. 
The 10% who said they were confused often claimed that as a positive, that it was sort of a type of intellectual struggle that they enjoyed and that they had confidence they would be able to work through that. The majority of them said that they felt comfortable in both a church and a synagogue. And that is one of the goals that the parents had in creating these programs was they wanted their children to have that comfort level just in order to go to their cousin's bar mitzvah and their other cousin's first communion because that's part of being a, an interfaith family. Even if you give your child a single religion label, they're still going to have an extended family that's interfaith. So they're still going to be put in the position of attending a church and a synagogue. And these parents really prioritized wanting to have their children have the level of education and comfort that they would be able to you know, feel comfortable. Now, people always want to know, how do these kids end up? Well, I can't tell you. Because first of all, none of us really ends up, right? Pew Research has shown a tremendously high rate of fluidity and flexibility in our religious identities and, affili and affiliations in America, right? So even people who are not from interfaith families are leaving their church, joining a new church, changing religions, going to more than one place of, uh, of worship simultaneously. It's quite common in America. So with these kids, you know, I could tell you where they are right now, but in five years they're going to be somewhere else. The other reason I can't really tell you how they end up is because they're very young at the point where I am capturing this data. So they're between 13 and 25 for the most part, and they really, a lot of them haven't made a decision. So there were interfaith children raised with both who chose Judaism clearly as their single religious identity. There were others who chose Christianity. There were some who chose Buddhism for reasons we could discuss later. But um, some who chose secular humanism. But the huge majority still are connected, say, claim both. They claim both as part of their identities. So they either identify as interfaith or Jewish and Catholic or both, however they describe it. And they see more benefit of keeping both than they do of deselecting one of them. They're unwilling to deselect. Now, there's always been concern that these children will feel torn between the two parents and that that will be psychologically unhealthy. That's not what they describe in my interviews, in the surveys. What they describe, interestingly, is the idea that they might choose someday in conjunction with a spouse. So they're looking beyond their own parents. They're confident. The parents have told them, we're okay with whatever you do. And that's part of the system in these communities, that the parents really need to be comfortable with the children making choices when and if they do. But the children are saying, maybe if I marry a Jewish guy, I'll be Jewish. Or they're saying, maybe if I marry a Christian woman, I'll be Jewish because I want to have an interfaith family just like the one I grew up in. So they're not necessarily saying they're going to choose the religion of their spouse. They may be choosing the opposite religion from their spouse because they want to maintain an interfaith family. And the majority of them, when I asked them, how would you want to raise your own children, 
said they would like to give them an interfaith education as well. So they're looking at replicating the experience they had, which is, I think, another testimony to the benefits of it, at least from their point of view. Um, what about the clergy? I have a chapter called Radically Inclusive Clergy, and they are. These are clergy members who have really stuck their necks out to support these families and these communities. And I'm very grateful to them. Um, they are doing amazing things. I will tell you, in Chicago, which is in some ways the group that's on the cutting edge of all of this, there are rabbis who go and say a blessing for the interfaith kids having their first communion. And there are Catholic priests who go and say a blessing when those kids have bar and bat mitzvahs. I can't even really tell you what that all means or where it's all heading, but it's happening. And what's interesting is when I speak often on college campuses, everybody under the age of about 30 seems to be completely comfortable with this. And everybody over the age of about 30 is still going, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. But no, no. <laughs> So whether we like it or not, we're heading into this era of fluidity and flexibility and complex identities. Um, I'm going to read to you just a few snippets from the chapter, which is filled with the stories of the children who grew up in these programs. <clears throat> and this is from a section where I asked them, about whether being an interfaith child is an advantage or a disadvantage overall. Um, none of them, zero out of 50, thought it was more of a disadvantage. And here are some of the things they said about it. A 17-year-old from Washington writes, people use the term open-minded. So I like to think of interfaith as being open-souled. A 23-year-old observes, if you grow up learning to bridge two religions that are not normally taught together, you will likely spend your adult life building new bridges as well. A 14-year-old from Chicago says, I try to never accept someone's beliefs as my own unless I have reflected on it inwardly. I find my own interpretations and beliefs on all topics. And a 20-year-old from Washington says, I find religious extremism of every kind to be out of line. It is people not being accepting of others that causes so much of the terror in the world. So, thoughtful kids, wise words. Um, in the 21st century, all of our ideas about race, about religion, about culture, about sexual orientation, about gender, no longer fit into a binary black or white model. All of us are rebelling in some way against those either or identity labels and claiming those complex both and identities. I see interfaith families as a kind of glue that binds together different religious communities living side by side so that we can understand what we share as human beings and to reduce the toll of religious misunderstanding, intolerance, and ultimately violence. If all of us go out and embrace the complexity and diversity 
inside ourselves, in our nuclear families, in our extended families, and in our communities that can only help to create a more just and peaceful world. Thank you. Now, I know you have questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, should I give this? In the families where you have the two parents, one Christian and one Jewish, do you find that the interfaith families are basically in families where the parents are both very strong in their religion rather than, you know, one person who's a secular Jew, we'll say, as opposed to a very strong Christian as a couple? Um, there's really a huge variety um, some of these couples are both strong believers. They're religious people. And neither of them wanted to compromise, if you will. Neither of them was willing to concede. And so they thought, well, let's try to do both and see if that works. And what my book says is, yes, it works. Um, in other cases, both of them could be very secular. But they still are attracted to this system because of the educational component. Because it's really, we're not creating a third religion. What we're doing is educating the kids about their, both of their ancestries. And that is appealing even to people who don't necessarily believe in God or who secular humanists or, you know, there's a lot of secular and cultural Jews, of course. But there are also, nowadays, a lot of secular and cultural Christians. It's a less familiar category for us. But there was actually a study last week um, that in, investigated the beliefs of people who check Christian as the little box on the survey, and about 40% of them are actually secular humanists. So they don't actually believe in God, but they still identify as Christian, and it, it's cultural. So I think because in the United States Christianity has been the default, the background religion, there has been this sort of myth that it wasn't a culture, that it's just sort of what everybody is. But of course, there are many, many Christian cultures of various types, and people bring those. And even if it's just, you know, I want to have the, the, the Swedish straw horses on the Christmas tree, you know, that's culture, and that's something that people want to hand down regardless of their belief systems. So, and then there are cases where you have a secular parent and a religious parent, and that creates a whole other set of issues and a whole other, other set of opportunities, frankly. Um, there's a great book that just came out specifically for people who are you know, non-believer, believer marriages called In Faith and In Doubt by Dale McGowan. Um, he gave my book a good review and I gave his book a good review. And it's not because we're scratching each other's back. It's because we both share the philosophy that it's good and productive and healthy for both parents to share their beliefs with the child, whether those beliefs are secular humanist beliefs or religious beliefs. So... Okay, I'll give you. Of a secular. What's the def definition of a secular religion? Uh, the, well, 
there are many forms of community in America for people who don't believe in God. So there's ethical culture, ethical society started in New York, mainly by secular Jews, but there's no Jewish content in it. It's a system where you have a community that teaches values. You have a, a Sunday school where you talk about values, um, but you don't need to have God as part of that. You rely, it's human beings relying on other human beings to make change and, and improve the world. But there are, there are many other formats for that now. In Judaism, there's actually secular humanistic Judaism where there are congregations of Jews who do Shabbat prayers and go through the cycle of Jewish holidays, but they have taken God out of all of those prayers. So that's another system. And now we have Sunday Assembly, which is a new and growing atheist community on a more Christian model. It started in London, and it's been spreading like crazy here. And it's for people who want all of the components of religion that you find comforting, the community, the, the people to bring you casseroles when you're sick, and um, the, the chance to sing together, which I think is a very fundamental sort of human need, but which doesn't necessarily have to have God as part of it. So in, in these interfaith families communities, we do talk about God. And for some interfaith families... God is a really important common ground between, say, Judaism and Christianity or between Islam and Christianity. Um, so for some families, you know, God is at the, the center of that common ground. Um, in our community, we teach God the same way we teach Jesus, which is there are many ways to think about God. There are many ways to think about Jesus. Um, Jesus could be your personal savior. Jesus could be... A, a rebel rabbi, a historical figure, um, the protagonist in an inspiring myth. And you will grow up and decide what you think. And you can't really make any assumption about what someone else thinks based on their label. So labels really can't tell you what other people think. If you meet somebody and they say they're a reformed Jew, you don't really know if they believe in God or not. You'd have to ask that person. You know. So we don't teach if your mother's Christian, she believes this, and if your father's Jewish, she believes this. We say some Christians believe this, some Christians believe this, some Christians believe this. Go home and ask your Christian mother what she believes. You know? And you will have a deep discussion with her. Yeah. So the question is, so is it more education and, and not about how you feel? It's both, because we're giving them access to the spiritual tools of both religions. And we're giving them opportunities to feel that if they are so inclined. You know, some kids are more spiritual than others, and I don't think we actually control that. But we sing together, you know, when they're teenagers, we take them to walk in a labyrinth, um, you know, we, they go on retreats and they sing. And, you know, so we give them all of those opportunities and they figure out what resonates for them. And it may have to do with 
what their parents think and believe, or it may be something that neither of their parents is doing, but which resonates for them. I mean, in the case where you have two secular parents who are bringing their kids to this program, they might not, the parents might not have had any religious education themselves, but sometimes the kids latch on to it. So as parents, we don't control what our children end up as. I mean, we all know that as parents, so... Anyone else that? <laughs> okay, yeah. Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. Um, I've talked with them. It's interesting. You know, there are sort of two interfaith worlds. One is the world of interfaith dialogue, and one is the world of interfaith families. And sadly, they're often not found in the same place or well connected. Yes. I believe that people from interfaith families, whether you're intermarried or you're born into an interfaith family, you have amazing skills in interfaith communication and dialogue because you're doing it 24-7 with your family members, right? And you're able to see the world through both lenses. And I think those are really important skills to have in interfaith dialogue. And there are a number of leaders in interfaith dialogue now who come from interfaith families, but often they're quiet about it. And I think part of the problem is that the traditional model of interfaith dialogue has been, you know, you have a Christian clergy person, a Jewish clergy person, uh, an imam, and they come together and they shake hands and they respect each other, and then they go back to their own little boxes. And the idea of people staying between the boxes, dancing around between the boxes, threatens that model. Because the model says, we're not going to blur lines, no one's going to convert, don't worry. Well, people do convert. People influence each other, especially when they're in love relationships. And so I have been advocating a lot for including interfaith families in interfaith dialogue more and I, I would love to go speak. <laughs> I know where they are, right across from Goucher. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. I, I, I was aware of that. I spoke with them at the American Academy of Religion conference last year, which happened to be here in Baltimore, which was very convenient. So I got to go and schmooze with a lot of the academics. And it's interesting because the academics are already hip to all of this. They've been writing about what they call multiple religious belonging or complex religious identities um, for years. And, but for religious institutions, it's more threatening because the, you know, the idea of the institution is we draw the boundary and either you're inside or outside. And if you want to come in, you know, you have to make concessions and be on the right page. And I understand all that. I mean, we teach our children in these programs. If you want to belong to a certain religious community when you grow up, you may have to be baptized or convert or you know, God forbid, have a circumcision. But, you know, there, there are things that you have to do to be part of that community, and we have to respect that. So we're not saying, you know, community X, you have to accept my child as X. 
You know, Community X gets to decide what their criteria are, and we understand that. But I also strongly believe that for these children that we're raising now, there are going to be welcoming communities in every religion. I mean, even now, there are Jewish communities that will accept you as a self-identified Jew without all of this worry about who did your conversion and were they kosher enough. Um, there are Christian communities that welcome everybody who walks in the door. And even in Islam, we're seeing the development, mainly here in the U.S. now, of progressive movements, of feminism, of LGBT-friendly, of you know, people doing interfaith marriages. It's starting to happen. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about all this. Yes? Um, are there any um, interfaith, or in your Jewish and Muslim is a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> there was a very interesting social media trend this summer during the worst of what was going on in Gaza. There was a hashtag on Twitter that was Jews and Arabs refuse to be enemies. That's a very long hashtag, if you know what a hashtag is. But people were posting photographs of their families and there would be like a little girl in the middle holding up a piece of paper that said, Jewish mom, Muslim dad, I'm here in Israel. Um, and then it just kind of all died down. But like any other combination, there are specific challenges and specific benefits. You know, for Jews and Muslims, the challenges are obvious. It's the weight of the history of the Middle East, of all of that, that they have to live with. That's also the synergy, because they share a lot of cultural stuff, starting with falafel and hummus. So um, those families in Israel are dealing with all of that. Yes? Oh. Now, in the Jewish community now, it's all of us. All of us are part of interfaith families, whether it's your cousins or your siblings or your grandchildren. It's all of us. The question or the statement was about programs where Jewish and Arab kids are being educated side by side. That's beautiful. 
Um, and there are programs, there are camps here in the U.S. where they bring those kids and, and they go to camp together here and then they go back. And that's all great. Um, and part of my response is, really, all kids need interfaith education when you think about it. Even if they're from a single faith background, all of us would benefit from this kind of education. Um, and it's interesting, uh, do you know Amy Jill Levine? She is a, an Orthodox Jew and a scholar at Vanderbilt University of the New Testament, which is interesting. So she looks at the New Testament from a Jewish lens. Um, but she has said that all Jewish kids need to be studying Christianity at a certain point in their education. There's kind of a myth that as a minority religion in a Christian context, we're going to automatically learn about Christianity because we'll get it by osmosis. But that's not really the case. Um, you know, you get Christmas trees and music, but you don't really get any understanding of the theology, of the differences between the denominations, all of which is really interesting and important living in our culture. So, I mean, another drawback for me of being given only a Jewish education was that I was very ignorant about Christianity until, as an adult, I decided to raise my children this way, and I began sort of learning alongside them. Um, but those programs where they're raising the kids side by side, also for me, always the question arises, well, if it goes through high school, some of those kids are going to fall in love with each other. So, you know, there's a sort of a, a, a naivete about it that, you know, we can educate them together, but, of course, they're going to stay separate. Well, they won't stay separate. This, it's entropy. It's human condition. It's love. It's everywhere. It can't be avoided. So, <laughs> And I don't think it's a bad thing, but... It'll be interesting to see how those programs, maybe, I think most of them stop before they get to adolescence, and that may be one of the reasons why. Yes. Hi. So, first, I just wanted to say that I think it's beautiful that there are these communities across the country that have parents who are intentionally raising their children in multiple state settings. Um, but I have a question for you, um, and that there are oftentimes situations where children are being Right. So the question was, um, what about kids being raised in geographic locations where they don't have access to this kind of intentional community? Um, and there, there's that, but also, like, for instance, I have a niece whose parents, one being my brother, um, or are not married and have since remarried other people and have other children. And my brother's family is very... Christian and his former girlfriend's family is very strong, so Muslim. And so my niece is being raised between two different families with two very strong faiths, and they're not being intentional about raising them both. Yeah. So she kind of has to navigate when she's with one of the other parents. Right. So if you have any thoughts on that type of 
not. Right. Could you take her to the Unitarian Church with you? Yeah. This is a leading question from my, my UU friend here. Um, now, I, did, I recently wrote a piece called Seven Ways for an Interfaith Family to Find a Community. Because if you're not in New York, Chicago, or Washington, you don't have a group like the one in which I raised my kids. Our kids are now 17 and 20. So, um, And there are all these different ways that interfaith families have traditionally found a place for themselves. The very good news is that many more synagogues and churches and other types of Jewish communities are much more welcoming than they were even 10 years ago. So if you want to pick one, you're probably going to be able to find one that's happy to have your interfaith family. Um, If you don't want to pick the one, you have other options, and Unitarian Universalism has been a traditional home for a lot of interfaith families, and those communities are available across the country. There's thousands, I guess. Um, And the UU communities vary greatly in terms of how how Christian they feel. I mean, it's Christian in its origins, but it's now officially not Christian and sort of post-Christian, I guess you could say. And you're going to, your child is going to learn all religions of the world, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and there's going to be particular emphasis on Judaism and Christianity. So you're going to get, your child is going to get some of that interfaith education, not as deep as what you would get in one of these intentional communities where, for instance, our community in Washington, they start Hebrew in pre-K, so that when the child comes of age, if they choose to do a bar about mitzvah, they will have some Hebrew literacy and be prepared to do that. Um, but for the child who who's being bounced between two different religions, that is potentially a problem because it's really important for them to have a way to integrate their two sides. And how do you do that? You can do it, but it requires a lot of struggle, and it's probably going to happen at a later age if you're not provided with a kind of a place in which to do that. Um, and seriously, a, a UU space might be a good place to do it. Um, I've been dreaming of starting summer camps for interfaith kids, but I haven't gotten around to it. And, 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 of course, being Muslim and Christian is going to have a different set of issues than Jewish and Christian. So um, the best thing would be to try to find even two other families that have kids with those two religions in them and let those kids be together once in a while. You know, have a, a brunch or have a, a breakfast during Ramadan together or something it's very powerful when a kid looks out and goes, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. There's other kids that are Hindu and Catholic or you know, whatever it is. Um, for me, when I found the Interfaith Families Project in Washington was already going when we moved to Washington. I'm not a founder. But when I discovered it, it was like I had found the home I'd been looking for all my life. It was very powerful. Even though I still identify myself as Jewish, especially if I encounter anti-Semitism or, you know, if I'm called on, if they need me, I'm there, I'm a Jew. But for me, the space of interfaith families is that space that I sort of feel most comfortable in and that feeds me sort of spiritually. I don't know if that's helpful. 
Anyone else? Yeah. Right. So we have an Easter service. Oh, sorry. The question was, when you have competing theological claims, how do you present those with integrity or or teach them? Um, Our Interfaith Families Project has an Easter service every year now. Our rabbi gives a sermon at the Easter service. He is pretty amazing. And what he does, he spent 40 years at Georgetown as the Jewish chaplain there. So he is deeply immersed in a kind of an intellectual Jesuit form of Catholicism. Um, and the sermon that he gives on Easter is about the resurrection as a universal symbol of spring and you know rising from the ashes you know the phoenix i mean that he talks about resurrections in jewish history which there 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 is resurrections in jewish in judaism i mean they talk about they talk about everybody being resurrected in the end times for instance um and so he gives some of that background and he is a guy who, when at Georgetown, there was a controversy where they, they were going to take the crucifixes out of the classrooms because they thought that we're a diverse university now. We're no longer really, we're not trying to be exclusively Catholic, and this might bother some people. Rabbi Harold White argued that they should leave the crucifixes up because it's important to the culture of the college because he sees that as a universal symbol of suffering that everybody should be able to relate to and not feel threatened by. So I don't know if that's helpful, but we do a lot of talking about mystery and not trying to necessarily resolve it. For instance, in kindergarten and first grade in the Sunday school classrooms, we use a system called Godly Play, which was developed by Maria Montessori, so Montessori schools. Now, Montessori was a a Catholic and a deep believer, and she actually developed this system um, of teaching religious studies using some of her techniques. And the way it looks, you have something called this a desert box. You have a box full of sand and little wooden figurines. And the teachers act out Bible stories, most of which take place in a desert, you know, people tromping through the desert. And then she asks the kids what they think, what they think happened. 
so you're not telling them what to think. You know, you're not giving them dogma. You're telling them the stories. These are foundational stories. In, in the case of, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, they're foundational for both of our two religions. Um, and you're leaving the stories up to interpretation, which is very Talmudic. It's also very Jesuit. It's also very Unitarian. I mean, you know, there are all of these traditions that involve questioning that are progressive, you know. We do teach them, if you believe that Jesus was your personal savior, then you are a Christian. You know, we're not trying to muddy that. If they make that choice to have that belief, then they are a Christian. Now, they still may claim their Jewish identity because it's cultural or because, you know, it can't be helped. I mean, I think the interfaithness is inherent, and the beliefs are something that you acquire or come to believe, and you can't help that, and then you, you take on that label, and you probably affiliate with that house of worship. But you're still an interfaith kid. I can spot them usually, you know? I, I have interfaith dar. And <laughs> I'm like, I'll meet somebody, and I'll get a feeling about them, and I'll go like, what religion were your parents? And then I'm right. It's amazing. <laughs> Anyway. Question. Yeah. So the children don't get confused. The question is whether the kids are confused and whether they can keep them separate. What the kids will tell you is the confusion is in the eye of the beholder. It's very confusing to people who haven't been born into both when they meet these kids and the kids are claiming both it befuddles. It goes against, you know, our minds are very Cartesian. We want things to fall into categories. We don't want blurring of boundaries. And so it's challenging. But, you know, there's, a, there's an entire literature about people who are mixed race, which has a lot to say about these issues. They're not entirely parallel. I mean, there's, there's a limit to that metaphor. Um, for one thing, if you're interfaith, nobody can look at you and tell usually. So it's, it's a very different experience going through life. But there, there are some parallels. Um, but, yeah, no, they say they're not confused. So for me, it's hard to insist that they are when they don't feel confusion. We should wrap up. <laughs> I'm glad to talk to... Glad to glad to talk to anybody else afterwards if you have more questions and thank you for coming out <laughs>